What a great opportunity we have this morning once again to join together around the Word of God as we study together. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We're focusing our attention this morning on verses 14 to 30. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. And I want to begin as we normally do by just simply reading this text for us, this narrative section that Luke gives us. And then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time together. Follow along, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread throughout all the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of in the synagogue were fixed upon him. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. All the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he passed through their midst. And he went his way. Let's pray. Father, once again, we are here faced with the truth of your word. Convicting reality of what these words will tell us is for our good and for your glory. The truth cuts sharply. 
The heart of man needs to hear truth. So we're here today to understand from you all there is that we must know about you that we might see ourselves rightly in your eyes and thereby repent. Thank you for your kindness in these ways. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it is sharper than any two-edged sword, how it divides down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart that we might see clearly just how deep sin is. Turn from it and embrace Christ. Thank you for loving us in that way. Honor your name in this time because of our Savior Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Mankind has an autonomy problem. Mankind has an autonomy problem inherent in the sin nature of mankind is a drive for personal autonomy. Autonomy means, in any simplest dictionary definition, it simply means independence or or freedom to rule oneself and thereby rule one's actions. That's what autonomy means. It is the idea of self-governing. It is inherent within the heart of man, and inherent within self-governing is the idea of personal authority, personal rule. Whatever I say goes. Whatever I want goes. Whatever I decide to be right is therefore right. And whatever I decide to be wrong is therefore wrong. This is the heart of self-autonomy. This is the principle whereby autonomy as it relates to self. The idea of self-rule, and we see this on display all over the place in our world today. This is what we see on the airwaves and throughout any kind of social media event. We see self-autonomy on display. The reason that many within the very country today in which we live are so vehemently upset with a decision made by the highest court in the land is because of the principle of autonomy. I say what is right, I say what is wrong, I do what I want to do, and no one gets the option to tell me otherwise. Even if the very sentence that falls from my mouth is opposite and contradictory of the previous sentence that came out of my mouth. My previous sentence doesn't matter anymore. It's what I say now, in the moment. Whatever pleases me. It isn't that people who believe that murder of the unborn have just a moral problem. 
If they could simply understand that the murder of the unborn is wrong morally, then maybe they would be normal. Sometimes we get that idea and we think that. No, they have a moral problem because they have a problem with something else ruling over them. Nothing will rule over me. They won't have anyone rule over them because they believe in inherent self Autonomy. They believe in self-rule. Whatever I determine to be right is right, and no person and no thing, not even the concept of God Himself, can tell me otherwise. In fact, if God is to be God at all, From my own self-autonomy, I will determine what He is. I will determine what God looks like and how He is to respond to me. That is self-autonomy. That is self-rule exercised in every way. This is why, beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ is such a convicting problem for so many. This is why the gospel cannot be softened. This is why the gospel cannot be edited. This is why we cannot remove in any kind of way what is inherent in the gospel. We cannot remove the offense of the gospel. The gospel challenges self-autonomy. The gospel says that you are not righteous in and of yourselves. The gospel says that you desire to rule yourself, but you are not to rule yourself. That there is one to whom you must bow the knee. There is one to whom you will give an answer for how you live, The gospel tells us that not only must we first believe that God is, but we also must know that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. The gospel tells us that the only way to seek him is through his son, Jesus Christ, who died for sinners like us. So the idea of self-rule is antithetical to the gospel. And this is why so many, sadly, even many very religious people, reject the gospel. Because the gospel calls for an absolute submission to Jesus Christ. And that kind of repentant submission can only come where self-autonomy is laid aside. This is what we see happening here in Luke chapter 14. The gospel and self-autonomy collide. Now remember to whom Luke has been writing. Luke is writing to his friend Theophilus. We saw that in Luke chapter 1. His dear friend so that he might have certainty about the things that he has been taught. Luke knows that Theophilus knows some things. 
He knows that Theophilus has known of Jesus Christ. He knows that Theophilus has heard of the miraculous birth of Christ and the stories that surrounded the miraculous birth of Christ. The angels going to the shepherds and and Mary receiving a a vision from the angel Gabriel and, and all that surrounded that miraculous event. Theophilus has heard about. He's heard the stories and known what happened. He's known of John the Baptist. He's known of the interactions between the forerunner of Christ and Jesus Christ Himself. Theophilus surely has heard the good news of Jesus Christ. He has heard the Gospel. And he is living in a world much like ours. One in which there were many who believed in God, in the concept of God, even in the nation of Israel. Any Jewish person would have said they believed God. It was God who had chosen them as a people. Many who believed in the Old Testament promises about Israel. They believed that because God had made promises to Israel as a nation in the Old Testament, that just simply being a Jew was good enough and they were okay with God. That God was okay with them. That God had ushered them into His family simply because He had chosen them and they were Jewish. They believed that the Messiah would come. The Messiah would fulfill all that God had promised in the Old Testament to Israel, that the Messiah would come and deliver His people from the bondage that they were now under. There were others, others who were outside of the heritage of Israel. They were outside. They they weren't of the Jewish nation. They were Gentiles, and they were believing in Jesus. Some were genuine, some were not. Luke is writing to ensure that Theophilus and all who read the words that God allows for us to have in the Scriptures in Luke's Gospel, that we would know the truth about Jesus Christ and the Gospel. I want you to have certainty about these things, Luke says. And so Luke includes this narrative here. In chapter 4. And it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the north. Jesus is now in Luke's gospel in Galilee. In fact, he is in his own hometown. He's in the town of Nazareth. Luke says to us in verses 14 and 15, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding districts, so not just Nazareth, but all the surrounding district up by the Sea of Galilee. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So Jesus comes back home. It's been about a year and a half that Jesus has been already involved in ministry, primarily in the area of Judea, in the south, in Jerusalem, in that area. In fact, according to John's Gospel, in John chapter 2, he had made a short trip back to the north simply to attend a wedding, you remember, in the town of Cana of Galilee, where he performed his first miracle. 
turn the water into wine. And he then went and lived for a time in Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee, and he did some other miracles there. John's Gospel recounts those miracles around that time of the ministry. Luke doesn't include all that details in his Gospel. A year and a half time has passed, and Luke tells us that Jesus now returns to Galilee under the leading of the Holy Spirit. Of course, we know he's been under the leading of the Holy Spirit ever since the baptism when the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and he is led into the wilderness by the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Luke chapter 4, verse 1 says, and he is tempted by the devil after 40 days of no food and no water. And so Jesus is led by the Spirit back to Galilee, and the news of his return spreads, and inside of Nazareth and outside of Nazareth, there is great stir. All the surrounding district is hearing the news about Jesus and all that Jesus is doing and what is going on with Jesus in his life and all that's happening, and this news of his return spreads. And Jesus, on his part, does what he has come to do. Jesus teaches and preaches to the people. Luke says in verse 15, and he's praised by all. This is the initial reception of Jesus Christ when he comes back home. Everybody is happy to see him. He is received with a hero's welcome, if you will. Local boy, now famous, is back. Look at us, we're finally on the map. The buzz around town is off the charts. Jesus is back. So Luke says in verse 16, came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, as was his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Here we begin to see the gospel confront self-autonomy wouldn't have been unusual for them to ask Jesus to read. That wasn't unusual within the synagogue. This is how the worship went in the synagogue. They would join together in the synagogue. They would sing some of the psalms that were uh, psalms of ascent and these kinds of things. As they went to worship, they would read from the Torah, which is the first five books that we have in the Bible, the, the, the books of Moses. They would read some passages from the Torah, and then they would ask another man who was attending that day to read from another book. Of course, Jesus stood up, and they hand him the book. And so, verses 17 through 22 gives us the account. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were 
fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. You can stop right there. This is an amazing moment. Here is the best preacher who has ever lived. Here in the synagogue is, in fact, the one who, by his own divinity, has given the very Scriptures to them that they hand him to read. Here is the God-man who gave every sentence from his mouth in the perfect way every time. Here is the only human being who never messed up one sentence of grammar in his life. He never had a run-on sentence. He never made a mistake in his presentation of what he's saying. It was always spoken with the right tone, with the correct words, never contradicting any truth. Is it any wonder that the people would say, even after he just simply read a verse and a half of Isaiah 61, a verse and a half, and then close the book, Is it any wonder that the people who heard him read, just read the text, would be speaking well of him? Would be wondering at the gracious words that are falling off of his lips? This is the perfect preacher at the God-ordained moment in the God-ordained synagogue with the God-ordained people in order that self-autonomy might be challenged with the gospel. He didn't speak like the other rabbis. He he was gracious. He he was pointed. He was serious. He was sober-minded, and his words were authoritative. Now, here was the problem. The heart of man is sinfully autonomous. The heart of man desires self-rule. And even in its self-rule, the heart believes it is good. In every self-autonomous decision that man's heart makes concerning himself, it believes and convinces itself that it is right, that it is doing what is best. It believes that there's nothing wrong with whatever it's doing, that it's okay with God on its own, that it, in fact, is righteous. The Gospel confronts all of that. Luke tells us that Jesus opened the book. Don't think of it like you think of the book sitting on your lap right there. It was a scroll. 
I've seen the Isaiah scroll that was they found years ago in the Qumran caves. It was, it's a massive piece of parchment that wraps around a very large area. It's not a small thing. He would have unrolled it to the place where he knew he wanted to read that day because he knew what they needed to hear that very day. And so Jesus rolls open the book and finds the place where these words are written. Isaiah 61, verses 1, in the first part of verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus just simply reads that text. Just one and a half verses of the entire scroll of Isaiah, and he rolls it back up, gives it back to the attendant, and sits down. Jesus didn't read the second half of Isaiah 61 verse 2, because that speaks of the vengeance of God. There is coming a day of vengeance. There is coming a day when the vengeance of God will be unleashed upon this world as Jesus Christ returns once again. But that wasn't for this moment. And so Jesus didn't didn't read that part because that's a future time when He would return again. That would come in the future. But this moment was for now. And every eye is fixed upon Jesus Jesus says to them these incredible words. He began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In your ears, you've heard it. Jesus is fulfilling in the very moment the very scriptures concerning himself. Now this is very interesting to me as one who preaches the word of God because I come to us and I preach about Jesus. I tell us about Jesus Christ and about the nature and character of God and about the heart of man and about the sinfulness of man and and how God deals with sin and the graciousness of God through Jesus Christ. I am not preaching about myself. And yet here is Jesus preaching about himself. Jesus is saying to them, listen, this passage in Isaiah, this passage in Isaiah which you have read numerous times, which you think you understand, you do not understand. It has nothing to do with what you think it it, it is about. It has to do with me. This is a massive statement made to these people. No one, no one in any synagogue throughout the history of Israel had ever heard someone in any kind of way before say, right now, today, this is being fulfilled in your presence. No one has ever said that. This is Jesus, the God-man, preaching a message about himself from a text that each one of them surely had heard about and had read potentially in the past, 
that speaks about the coming of the Messiah, that speaks about the one from whom they were waiting for, that speaks about the one whom every Jew desired would come, the Messiah, the Deliverer, and here he is proclaiming to them that this passage is being fulfilled in their hearing. You know what Jesus is saying to them? I am here, I am your Savior. Notice verse 21 says, and he began to say to them. In other words, this one sentence we have in Verse 21 is not everything that Jesus said to them after he sat down and rolled the scroll up, gave it back to the attendant. Jesus was explaining to them exactly what Isaiah 61 verse 1 and part of verse 2 meant by what it said. Jesus sat down with them and took the time to explain to them the true understanding and meaning of Isaiah 61 verse 1 and 2. And then he said to them, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is this that is taking place? Well, this this is a challenge to their understanding. This is a challenge to their own heart. This is a challenge to what they believe about God and themselves. This is a challenge to their understanding of what Isaiah meant by what Isaiah said. And Jesus is confronting them at the very core of their belief and about Himself. Listen, beloved, this is what the Gospel does. This is exactly what the gospel does. The gospel confronts. And that confrontation cannot be softened in any kind of way. We cannot go to people, we cannot think to ourselves that I'm going to go to someone, I'm going to go to my friends, I'm going to go to my family, I'm going to go to my coworkers, I'm going to go to this person that God has brought into my path, and somehow I'm going to try to soften it in hopes that they will come to Jesus Christ. Because after all, I don't want to offend them with the truth. I I don't want to make it hard. Listen, we don't get that option. We just get the privilege to preach the gospel. Cannot be softened. And you can see the initial internal conflict playing out right before our eyes in the heart of the people. Notice... What's going on in verse 22? All are speaking well of him. All are wondering at these gracious words that are falling from his lips. Wow, this sounds like very good news. This is, this is, these are, wow, listen to him talk. I mean, he's very logical. He's very gracious. He's serious about this. I mean, it sounds like he means what he says. It it makes sense to us. We're, we're, we're gaining some understanding. But notice the problem. And yet they were saying, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? You see, they understood what he was saying. They understood exactly what he's saying. Wait a minute, that's a passage about the Messiah. And you're telling us that it's about the Messiah, that it's right, it's true about the Messiah, but it's about a 
deeper issue about the Messiah. It's not about the physical realities in which we believe the Messiah would come and set us free in this physical kind of way, but it's about a spiritual issue. You're telling us it's an issue of our heart, and you're the answer to this? You're the one this is talking about? In other words, you're the Messiah, and we must believe you? Wait a minute, aren't you Joseph's son? See what's happening? Jesus had read a very familiar passage. He had read from Isaiah. Isaiah speaks about the Messiah coming. The the Messiah, when he comes, he would preach the good news to the poor. In their minds, the economically poor. That's us. Hey, we're poor. That he would proclaim release to the captives. That is, those under the tyrannical rule of the Roman government over us. Yes, we're under this oppression by the Roman government. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to preach a release to the captives around. There would be physical healing to those who were blind. The oppressed, the downtrodden would be set free. In fact, It would be just like the Jubilee year in which all debt was canceled every 50th year in Jerusalem and Israel. All debt was canceled. All property was returned to its rightful owner. It would be just like Isaiah promised, the favorable year of the Lord. For those who were listening, all of Isaiah's prophecy dealt with the external. Everything on the outside. We're Jews. We're God's people. God is good with us. We're good with God. Since we're Jews, that relationship is already cared for. It's the external things that's the problem. All we need is the Messiah to come and set the external things straight. And yet here is Jesus. Good old boy, townie, gone away, come back. Wow, he's now in our town. We've heard of the things he's done. He's preaching now in the synagogue. He's preaching this passage. He's preaching it with convincing authority. No one can speak ill of him as to his message. No one can say, yeah, but you know, I think you're a little wrong on that. Nobody can say that. And he's saying, listen, this is all a spiritual issue. And they're turning to one another and going, yeah, but aren't you just Joseph's kid? I mean, how, how, can, we, how, how can we actually believe what you're saying is true? How can we believe that you're saying you're the Messiah, that the words of Isaiah point to you, that all of this is actually a spiritual issue, it's not an external issue at all? I mean, how can we believe that? Aren't you Joseph's kid? Jesus said, I'm here to save you. And they're saying, no. No, that can't be. You're just Joseph's son.
Notice how Jesus responds. Verse 23 says to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. Physician, heal yourself. It's what happens in the heart of men when the gospel is preached. Really? You go share the gospel with somebody and you say, listen, God's going to demand it of you. You're a sinful person. Really? Yeah, buddy, right. You're sinful too. Look at your own life before you point your finger at mine. Go heal yourself. I need salvation? Are you kidding me? I'm okay with God. You are telling me that? Listen, go go deal with your own life. Go deal with your own sin. Look at your own faults. Go heal yourself. And after all, you want us to believe that? Well, prove who you are then. Prove it to us. I mean, you're Joseph's son, aren't you? And and you're not perfect. Why don't you prove it to us? Prove all this stuff that you're saying to us. Whatever happened, whatever we heard you have done in Capernaum, do it here. Do it in our town. Do it in our town. Make something float here. Turn some wine into water here. Heal somebody here. Do something miraculous so that if we see that, then we'll believe. If you want us to believe what you're saying, then do a miracle in our town, just like we've heard you do other places. Listen, Jesus, if you want us to believe your message, prove it. Because I'm not going to believe unless you do. They are offended by what Jesus is saying. They are offended that Jesus, how dare he come into the synagogue and say, this is about me. How dare the God-man say, you're sinful and you need a Savior. How dare the gospel open the heart and look at the heart and say, you cannot get to God unless you go through Jesus Christ. How dare it say that? They are offended by what Jesus is saying. Why? Because they love self-rule. The gospel offends self-rule. They aren't going to follow anyone, especially when it comes from someone they know. I'm not going to believe the gospel. You're my kid. I'm not going to believe the gospel. I knew how you grew up. What do you mean believe in Jesus? What do you mean believe as Jesus has changed your life? I'm not going to believe that. I knew who you were five years ago. Go heal yourself. Change your own life. This is how it is when we share the gospel with family and friends. You tell me I have a sin problem? Look at yourself. Is that right? Is that right? Is that, is that what is happening here? Were they offended at Jesus? 
Yeah. Look at verse 18 to 23 of chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Check this out. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things, all that Jesus was doing. Jesus heals the centurion. And summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the expected one? Or, or, or do we look for someone else? Are you the guy that we should be believing in? Are, are you the Messiah? Or is there something else coming? Someone else coming? And when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he granted sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, you go, go to John and report to John what you have seen and what you have heard. What is it? What did they see? What did they hear? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Sounds very familiar to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Captives are set free, the eyes of the blind are open, the gospel is being preached to the poor. Verse 23. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. That's the problem. Luke chapter 4, that's the problem. They are stumbling over Jesus Christ. It begins back just a few verses earlier when they say, Isn't this Joseph's son? The seed of doubt raising up in their mind and in their heart. Jesus takes them to the Scripture, explains the Scripture to them, says to them, as no one has ever said, this is fulfilled in your presence right now. And they begin to doubt it. The seeds of doubt creep in. And they won't believe what he said. And Jesus says, no doubt you're going to say to me next, here's the next things coming out of your mouth. Not just are you Joseph's son, but really you have a sin problem too. You tell us we're bad. You tell us we need something. Listen, you've got a problem too. Go heal yourself. Oh, and if you really think you're somebody, then do a miracle here. Do something here. We'll believe that. They are offended at Jesus. Offended. That's what the gospel does, beloved. It offends people. It offends those who love self-rule. And every man without Christ loves self-rule. And so Jesus exposes their self-rule through two illustrations that they knew well about. Notice what he says in verses 24 to 27. He said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. That was just a poke in their eye. I'm a prophet. I'm here in my hometown and you won't believe me because you think "Ah, you know me too well. But I say to you in truth. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. 
Very common reality in the history of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 17 recounts the story. A three-year famine came over the whole land. There was no food. There was scarcity all over the place. They were crying out to God for help. God sends Elijah, but not to Israel. He sends Elijah to only one, to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon. You know where the land of Sidon is? It's in the Gentile country. It's not in Israel. It's not a Jewish land. This is a Gentile country. Elijah goes there to a woman who was a widow. She finds, Elijah finds this widow and her son. She's about to cook her last cakes because food has run out. She says, let me just cook this cake and then I'll die. And Elijah says, no, first cook me a cake and then you go cook one for you and your son and you'll never run out. And she believes it and does it. She believes the prophet of God and what he was saying and God honors her belief, her faith. And she is provided for till the famine ends. Not one person in Israel was like that. They knew that. They wondered why. Jesus just explained why. Because they were rejecting God. This Gentile woman was willing to place her faith in what God had said through Elijah, the prophet. And then he says, verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the one who followed Elijah, the one who took over from Elijah's ministry, and Elisha now is the prophet on the scene. And another reality is taking place within Israel in, in 2 Kings chapter 5. And Elisha the prophet is on the scene, and yet God doesn't cleanse the lepers. He doesn't cleanse the lepers of Israel. He goes to Naaman, who was in rebellion against God, until Elisha the prophet comes, and Naaman gets healed of his leprosy, a Syrian who was a hated country of Israel. So here you are, Jesus is pointing right at their heart and saying, listen, the same kind of rebellion that was in Israel during Elisha's time and Elijah's time, and why God didn't take care of that, the whole reason for the famine upon you was because of your own rebellion, and God sent Elijah outside of Israel to a, to a Gentile woman, and she believed God, and, to, in, and during Elisha's time, there was leprosy going rampant in Israel because of your disobedience, and the prophet Elijah or Elisha was sent outside of Israel to a, to a country that you hated, to some Gentile who was disobedient to God at the time, and yet God, because he repented and turned to God, God healed him of his leprosy. He believed what God said. But no prophet has any kind of welcome in his own hometown, according to you, What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, hey, listen, listen. You cannot rule yourself and be right with God. You cannot rule yourself and be right with God. If you think you are okay with God because of who you are, because you are of this nation, you are gravely mistaken. God saved a few Gentiles rather than many Israel." during a desperate time because Israel rejected what God had said. Israel had a great need, but God sent Elijah to none of them. Why? Pride. 
self-autonomy, the desire to rule themselves. They believed they were okay already. No humility before God. No humility to follow God. Listen, beloved, mark this down. It is only the sick that need a physician. It is only the sick that need a physician. They were offended at Jesus because they thought they weren't sick with sin. They believed they were okay, all right, already with God. They were living under self-rule, ruled themselves, ruled their own life. And the gospel is right there in front of them, talking to them. The living word is talking to them. And it's confronting them of all of that. In fact, look at chapter 5 of Luke at what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Does all these remarkable things, leper, paralytic. And after that, he went out, verse 27, and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. And Levi gave him a big reception for in his own house. And there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples. And they're saying to, to the disciples of Jesus, why, to Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax gatherers and sinners? Why do you do that? Why don't you eat with us? That's the implication. Why don't you come to us? We're the righteous. And Jesus answered and said to them, it's not those who are well who need a physician. Those who are sick. Jesus says, listen, I've come to call the righteous, or not come to call the righteous, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Implication there is simply this. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, listen, you think you're already righteous. Your self-autonomy has so blinded your eyes that you think you're okay in your own self-rule. You don't need me. You don't need me, not because you don't need me, but because you won't have me. Did that message hit the chord? Did it, did it strike the chord of their heart? Did it get down to the thoughts and intentions of their heart, as Hebrews chapter 4 says? Well, it must have. Look at their response in verse 28 through 29. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. <laughs> I love that. Not because I love rage, but because I love what the Word of God does. It doesn't apologize. Oh, sorry. Sorry you're not feeling good about your sin. Sorry you can't just come in here any way you want. God will just take you as you are and you can stay as you are. No, no. Doesn't say any of that. They were all filled with rage as they're hearing these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him off the cliff. 
We went to church today, and you should have heard that preacher. We, we took him out and, and, and behind the barn and gave him a licking. He was speaking to us like nobody spoke to us. How dare he? They didn't even let the church service finish. As they're hearing this, they, they rise up and cast him out. It's all about them. They interrupt the service, lead Jesus out to kill him. For what? For what? For bringing the life-giving news of the gospel to them? Yep. Why? Why would they want to get rid of the good news of the gospel? Why would they want to silence the gospel? Why would they want to have the church closed? Why would they want to have no one hear the truth of Jesus Christ? Because that is what the gospel does. Confronts self-autonomy. Listen, beloved, we cannot remove the offense of the gospel. Cannot. Truth offends. And the gospel is the best news ever to be heard. But it's the most offensive news to the ears of the unconverted. Sometimes we get this idea that we can remove the offense if we just soften it. We just kind of brush aside the idea of sin. Don't talk about that. Explain it as if Jesus has some wonderful plan for your life. This is your best life now. Says the heretic Joe Osteen. Listen, you cannot remove the offense of the gospel. In fact, it needs to offend. Why? Because we love our own self-rule. We love ourselves, and the gospel says, follow me. Jesus says it this way, John 14, I am the way. Not I am one way, not I am some way, not I am a way. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And if you don't understand the definitiveness of that statement, Jesus follows it up with this. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's pretty exclusive. No one. Only Him. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No one comes to the Father but by Christ. There is no other way. The only way to Jesus, to God, is through the Son. And the only way to the Son is through turning your back on self-autonomy and submitting by faith to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your self-autonomy. These didn't believe. They didn't believe they were sick. And so they rejected the great physician. Turn to each other for a second opinion. First, they doubt who Jesus is, and then they completely reject him, wanting to rid themselves of any memory of this famous boy from the hometown of Nazareth who had come back to tell us the truth. Jesus preached one message there. And never returned. 
What happened? Verse 30, passing through their midst, he went his way. I love that. Like a little sentence just thrown in there by Luke. All this drama going on, all this confrontation happening, this vitriolic rage is having mob rule has taken place, hauling Jesus out to throw him down the cliff. Surely it would happen. Nope. Passing through their midst, he went on his way. We don't know all that took place with the passing through their midst. Maybe that was Jesus like walking through the wall. I don't know. But in God's timing, and according to God's providence, Jesus went on without their vehement action coming against him. Why? Because it wasn't Jesus' time to die. And praise God for that, right? He went all the way to the cross. He went all the way to the cross. Jesus says, blessed are those who don't stumble over me. This is the problem. A lot of people say, I believe God. I believe in God. I believe there is a God. Don't talk to me about Jesus Christ. You cannot have a relationship with God without Jesus Christ. You will not acknowledge and embrace Jesus Christ by faith. You do not have a relationship with the only living and true God. That's what some of what makes our time around the communion table so precious to us who believe. There was a time when we were rejectors. There was a time in our own heart and our own mind when we said, yeah, maybe, I don't think so. But God made us alive in Christ. God granted us mercy. It was God who granted us repentance from our own self-autonomy. And every now and then we try to exercise it. And God as a loving Father through other Christian brothers and sisters and through His Word of God, we read the Word of God or we come around other brothers and sisters or we sit in a Bible study or we come to the place of worship and we are convicted by the truth we hear and God uses that in our heart and we turn from that sin and that love of self and we... Turn to Christ. God forgives because He's faithful and just to forgive our sins. Once we were hell-bound sinners and God drew us to Himself, by faith we embraced Jesus Christ and now we follow Him. Jesus wanted these in his own hometown, just like we do when we get saved. We go to our family, our friends. We, we go to the people who are closest to us. We want them to hear the truth. And we are, we are adamant. We're, we're passionate about it. And yeah, maybe we don't say everything right. Maybe we don't know everything. Maybe we don't have all the answers. And maybe they challenge us with their questions that we can't answer and we, we stumble along. But in the end, we do, our desire is just to get them. We want you to embrace Jesus Christ. We want you to know the life that we have. We want you to know the forgiveness of sins that we have and they go yeah but you're just my son or you're you're just my my friend or or really we know who you are 
Beloved, we, we would plead with anybody here this morning, if that's you, don't, don't reject Christ. Don't reject Christ. We're, we're certainly not perfect. We're certainly not people who say we do everything right, but we are people who say the only way is through Jesus Christ. It's only by the blood that we are saved. What a wonderful Savior we have. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. Let's pray together. Lord, as we think about your mercy and grace, we think about the display of mercy and grace even for these souls to whom Jesus was speaking that day. We think about the mercy and grace that you have used through others in our own life as we heard the gospel, as the gospel was shared to us, and we, for how long, who knows, we stiff-armed it as if we knew better. Thank you, Lord, for not rejecting us. For continuing to draw us to yourself to that day, that moment, that time when our eyes were open to the truth. We embraced Jesus Christ by faith and we knew real life. And we wanted to go and tell everybody. We wanted to go and tell our family, our mom, our dad, our sisters, our brothers, relatives, friends, co-workers. And yet we find far too often the same rejection, same answers. And then we open your word and we realize and see that they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting you, the only Savior. So Lord, we plead plead on behalf of them to break their hearts, shatter their lives until they come to You. Make them miserable in their sin. Chasten them if necessary. Oh God, save them. We live in a sin, sin sick world dead in its trespasses, hell-bent on iniquity at every turn. Human morality will never change that. The best of governments will never change that. Only you Only you can change the heart of man. Move upon us to be courageous ambassadors of the gospel. And we'll trust you with the salvation of whoever it is you're drawing to yourself. For we love Jesus Christ. It's Him whom we serve. In His name we pray. Amen.